0: Chapter 22. The Austin Film Festival. You guys look like you were really having fun up there. The three weeks between the Middle East screening and flying to Austin were relatively quiet, as I worked slowly on a How we Volume 2 Blu-ray. Despite my tested knowledge that no one wants optical media, I continue to commit most of my work to Blu-rays, and because the podcasts have produced such a great deal of non-feature film content, they've become good places to house works like animations, short films, unreleased production stills, etc. John Hunt, for instance, had found a treasure trove of stills from our days as young teen filmmakers in 2001, with which we provided a fun slideshow and commentary for the Blu-ray. Planning the Austin trip proved to be a little stressful, as I juggled flight numbers, hotel numbers, rental car confirmations, and a carefully planned schedule of our screenings and other events at the conference. As far as communication with the festival administration went, AFF is top-notch. They prompted me daily for a list of deliverables and for various options I had. Two free badges were available to each film, which gained us free access to all festival movies and events. Those badges went to Jeff and I, which, for the average person, would have cost nearly $600. dollars Any additional people associated with the film could purchase a producer's badge for half off, so Nina opted to do that, not wanting to separate from me if I wanted to use my badge. No one else had badges, but Jeff and I were able to hand out ten free passes to our screenings, which after a great deal of planning and thought, was a perfect number based on the intended attendance of our friends and family. The rules for entry were clearly communicated to us, which was essentially a tiered system. There would be a badge holder line, all of whom would have first priority for entry into the theater, but needed to arrive 20 minutes before starting time. Second priority would go to the line containing people with passes, and final priority would go to those buying admission at the door. Like the brattle before it, I had no idea what the turnout would look like, even less so being in a foreign land with few supporters, but a big festival with many badge holders. So I instructed the pass holders to arrive a good half hour early, not unlike Buffalo, I could pay for certain marketing opportunities, like paying $300 to include promotional material in the welcome bag, which would be distributed to all badge holders. I wasn't about to do that. Like Seattle, this festival agreed to take promotional materials sent in by the filmmakers, so I sent in two 24 by 36 posters and several hundred postcards. They were willing to distribute the postcards, which I later learned meant putting them out on the two merch tables at the festival headquarters. I sent the print materials to the festival, and they soon after confirmed receipt quite unlike Seattle. A week or so before the festival, I was asked to attend a conference call to go over details. Nina and I were out for lunch in Fall River, Massachusetts, which isn't the most delightful place in the world, but I took the call for my parked car when we finished eating. They just reiterated everything that was already communicated in email, which, while wasted on me, seemed necessary for the extremely flaky, aloof filmmakers I heard on the other lines. They struck me as almost unhappy about getting into this awesome film festival, interrupting with things like, "'Excuse me, I only just found out I got into this festival, so what is it I have to do?' "'I have to send you how many copies? I'm just now hearing about this.'" While the call struggled forward, I gazed out my car window to find an escalating domestic dispute taking place on the street. The man and woman started with aggressive conversation, which increasingly became physical, and finally, strong punches were being thrown in both directions. A normal-looking pedestrian stood a few feet from the abuse, but was clearly calling 911, and then she began to be harassed. I muted my phone and drove a few blocks over, anxiously waiting for this ridiculous phone call to end so I could call 911, if only to contribute to other calls. By the time I connected with the emergency dispatcher, they were all too aware and shooed me away. As part of the online welcome packet for filmmakers, I was provided a list of local press that might be interested in spotlighting certain filmmakers and was encouraged to reach out. Jeff sent around a press release, but we got no bites. As the days ticked down, I emailed the AFF press person in a bit of a panic, fearing a non-turnout if we weren't able to market this film to some extent. She copied in a local press person who supposedly had a podcast. We both agreed we would meet when I arrived in town. Jeff and I were also able to reach our former writing professor, who couldn't have been more supportive of and excited about our film being in the festival, and had every intention of bringing his group of badge students to our screening. He quickly deflated when he discovered they would leave the day before our showing, disappointing us all. Still, he wanted us to speak to his students and screen the movie, which now meant I was going to screen this thing three times during my stay in Austin. If I wasn't tired of it by now, I would be by the end of the trip. And after jumping a few hoops, we were able to arrange for a DVD screening in his hotel suite. Additionally, he looped us into all communication with his students, inviting us to all of their events, including a meet-and-greet with Breaking Bad co-executive producer and Better Call Saul co-creator Peter Gould. I gleefully accepted. Nina and I hit the ground running when we arrived in Texas. We noticed an Austin Film Festival table in the airport, flagging down arriving filmmakers, which was an immediate sign of affirmation. We rushed over to the Driscoll Hotel several blocks away where the festival had a major presence, inhabiting two large lobbies filled with registration tables, schedules, merchandise, and a nice big stack of having fun up their postcards. I asked where the posters were, which, like Seattle, cost a pretty penny to print, and was informed I would find them at the screening venues. An hour later, Nina and I were sitting in a room with my former professor, his bright-eyed youngsters, and Peter Gould, who was every bit as smart, insightful, and entertaining as the show he pens. Getting to ask a few questions and interact with someone I admire to that extent was a highlight of the entire having fun of their experience. When we were shooting, we all watched the Breaking Bad finale, and I wished I could be so great. Still nowhere near it, my film was screening at a festival in which I got to discuss writing with one of the most prominent creative voices from that series. Once again, folks, poetry. We united with Kyle and Hana, who were now essentially dating, and enjoyed a rooftop Mexican meal in the Texas sun, As it grew dark, we visited the Deborah and Kevin Rollins Studio Theater, where we were first scheduled to screen. I looked around for any sign of my poster, but there was none. I asked the very young festival staff for help, and they had no idea, calling festival headquarters for answers. The venue was more of a concert hall and performing arts center than a movie theater, and in that moment, because it was Halloween, a concert of spooky sounds and music was in progress. A mom emerged with her child and gave us their tickets, saying it was far too spooky for her kid. There weren't enough for all of us, and as we looked upon the Austin skyline from the top of the outdoor landing of the Art Center, I received a phone call from one of the festival coordinators. From his quick and sharp tone, someone must have told him I was being fussy or crazy, because he was prepared to shut me down. The posters will be at their respective venues on the nights they screen. Oh, alright, but that's not going to market the screening, it's just going to be decoration for the screening, right? Quite. With a few more words, we were off the phone, and I forever learned my lesson. When a festival offers to hang your posters or distribute your postcards, don't bother with the posters. They're expensive and almost always mishandled. The postcards, on the other hand, are cheap and plentiful, and can be a useful tool in advertising your screening in stores and restaurants whose clientele might notice or care. Bottom line moving forward, yes to postcards, no to posters. Early the next morning, Nina and I connected with Jeff and enjoyed some of the tastiest pancakes of my life from the Kirby Lane Cafe on South Lamar. Peanut butter banana and Nutella for me, the vegan special for Nina. Despite my carefully planned itinerary of festival seminars, we attended one an hour later and no others after that. It was a talk by the CEO and founder of crowdfunding distribution website Seed&Spark, the central theme being that successful crowdfunding doesn't only mean raising your goal money and catching the check, but building a fan base that follows you through production and to distribution. Her suggested social media strategies were the same soul-crushing stuff of my previous class, like how the only way to interest anyone in your content is to flatter them, but she emphasized the important point that DIY filmmakers need to embrace DIY distribution. It can't be, and won't be, left up to someone else, and despite my distaste for the whole thing, if I hadn't wrestled and experimented with the many distribution outlets available to me, we wouldn't be sitting in Austin, a day away from screening our film at one of the biggest festivals in the country. Speaking of our efforts to Guerrilla Market, there was a small cardboard diorama of a movie theater with the text, Austin Film Festival above it, and I would later see it was featured in the video introduction to every movie in the schedule. We put a postcard on the screen of the little theater, spotlighting having fun up there as the premier film of the festival. We checked back each day, and it was never taken down. We did our best to vacation and spend quality time between festival obligations. We went to a great bar-slash-video game arcade with Hana's family, ate incredible barbecue at Ruby's, and saw their backyard pits, to Nina's disgust. Went to every record, comic, and video game store we could find, including an incredible one called Game Over Games on South Lamar. ...and littered postcards. My parents arrived the day after Nina and I... ...and stayed at a Days Inn near our second venue, the Galaxy Highland. We picked them up and visited that theater... ...catching several dozen people in line to another movie. We worked it and encouraged them to come to our screening, postcards in tow. During this, Jeff attended the awards luncheon... ...of which only one person per film was invited... ...and they prefer it to be the writer. He noted that he sat awkwardly with others... ...not feeling particularly social... But creator of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, was the speaker. The Comedy Vanguard Award winner was Not Us. It went to one of the other five people in the category. Later that day, Jeff visited the high school classroom of one of his Austin-based friends and talked movie writing with them. From what I could tell, they were enamored, further evidenced by one of them buying a Blu-ray off the website, expressing an email that, words cannot express my feelings for this film. I never expected this story about a musician in his late 30s to resonate with a high schooler, but when I was 17, I was already having artistic crises, so maybe it has that appeal. The morning of the first screening began with our hotel showing of the movie to our professor and his pupils. Only four students chose to attend, but the viewing was also attended by both our writing professor and a former instructor of mine. Very ironically, the one I described in Chapter 5, who was critical of my lazy run-and-gun shooting style for a student project. Despite the bad audio and hotel television picture, our teachers were very impressed and proud of us, and they made us promise we would come to one of their classes in the future to speak. While Jeff and I did that, Kyle and Hana reported to the Rollins to improve the quality of the projection. They sent me a few cell phone pictures, and I was very impressed. The room, I could see, was huge. It would be a challenge to fill it. The AFF website published a schedule that festival attendees could sign up for on an event-by-event basis. The first screening of Having Fun Up There, a Sunday night at 9.30pm, promised 38 attendees, which I could live with. I wanted to lock in as many viewers as possible, of course, so I tried to connect with the podcaster I was pointed to previously. She was simply bizarre, telling me she had to cancel because her videographer wasn't available, and she only does her shows on YouTube so that they'll go viral. Having very little information about her actual fan base and the likelihood that she would be any help to the screening... I offered to shoot it and upload it ourselves. Enthusiastically, she agreed, saying that she wanted to help first time filmmakers like us because we were the dreamers of tomorrow. We would meet at 1 p.m. at the Driscoll. I grabbed lunch with Nina, Kyle, Hannah, and Jeff and briefed them on how potentially strange and useless this press visit might prove. When 1 p.m. came, We didn't know where to find her in the hotel, so we hung out near the designated press room where they have one of those nifty festival backdrops and photographers. When she found us, the others got a front row view of her eccentric and polite condescension. Decked out in a fluffy white blouse, she assumed that we had our hearts set on using the press room, so she blew past us, spoke to someone, and broke the great news to us. We're all going to wait another hour, and even though our interview won't be published or considered real press, she's going to offer us the real-world experience of being interviewed by a real-life interviewer. Somehow we agreed to this, and wandered the streets for another hour, but not before I texted her a link to the trailer. Until then, she didn't even know the title of the film or the simplest synopsis. Now we were getting punchy. Hana was especially irritated, wanting to get on with her day and spend time with her family. We were put off by her head-in-the-clouds delusion and patronizing optimism, and since the interview would mean nothing, we were the only ones shooting it. We fantasized about answering in cold, stark, honest terms only. We laughed about how she kept using the term dreamers, and eventually linked it to the famous quote from This Is Spinal Tap. When asked if he couldn't play music, what would he do? Michael McKean's character answers, I'd be a full-time dreamer. We were all huge Spinal Tap fans, so this evolved into planning to answer all her questions exclusively in Spinal Tap quotes. Our plan was a huge success, as we fairly convincingly transitioned in and out of quotes, informing her that tonight we're going to rock it, that we now have too much perspective on the film. We've discovered we have a selective audience, the challenges of finding that fine line between clever and stupid, and how Hanna sits between Jeff and me as the lukewarm water Our personal favorite was, When asked what we want from the audience, Hannah answered, Not a dry seat in the house. Our interviewer announced that she would be at the screening, and she even mentioned we could follow up with something on the radio the next morning, and absolutely none of that happened. We never saw or heard from her again. My parents Nina and I attended a screening at the Rollins directly before ours. It was an excellent documentary about the Barkley Marathons, a secret foot race in the mountains of Tennessee, considered one of the hardest running trails in the country. The crowd was absolutely packed, and I couldn't help but notice their poster had been hanging in the lobby for days. Moreover, the special interest documentary brought in athletes, runners, hikers, and general intrigue that I could never expect my film to garner. It also happened to be the weekend of the rock and roll half marathon in Austin. The aforementioned line policy was closely and strictly observed in managing the crowd that bought tickets to the Barclay Marathons. It was time for the big screening and my anxiety climbed as almost no one who wasn't a personal supporter showed up. The poster was in the lobby, however, as promised, down a few feet from the still-prominent poster for the Barclay Marathons. The line policy was wasted on our poorly turned-out movie, and I sarcastically joked that they should dismantle the ropes they made for lines and just start seating people. Once in the theater, the expected 38 looked more like 17. My self-esteem started dipping, and I began to dread the next 65 minutes, sitting through it with the grown-up equivalent of a pout. Bonica and many of Jeff's friends were in attendance, however, and that was something to be happy about. When we did our Q&A, for which even fewer people stayed, Bonica took a few of her patently awesome photographs, which, despite the low turnout, I was very grateful to have. A memorable highlight was when we were asked for the worst jobs we've ever worked. Jeff told a classic story about an insane boss he had when working construction, and Kyle completely fabricated a profane and over-the-top job. Outside in the lobby, we were asked to vote for this or another film for the jury prize, which is when we discovered Jon Stewart of The Daily Show fame was debuting his first time director film, Rosewater, at the festival, and there was great fanfare awaiting him in several days. We stopped casting votes for the film when we realized this. I later learned that the Barkley Marathons won the audience award. When quietly mulling around the lobby, a burned-out-looking Texan in his late 50s with a greasy ponytail and a vacant expression came up to Jeff and me to let us know there was nothing in the film he could relate to, just a lot of whining, and he found it, at the very least, bearable, because he tries to look on the bright side of things. Ignoring that completely, my mood tanked, as I became all at once discouraged by every failure and underwhelming moment in 15 hard-working years as a filmmaker. As I drove my parents back to the Days Inn, they didn't understand why I was so upset, and I quickly felt guilty for bringing them down when they had come all this way to be happy for their son. I lay awake in bed for hours and traded texts with Neil Murphy, a fellow filmmaker and friend I mentioned earlier, who has been a good and relatable ally when either of us are artistically discouraged. My depression was not so much due to the low turnout, but what it and other failures represented to me. Nina pointed out that if we want people to attend our screenings, we should give back and attend more festival showings, of which we had only attended one so far and had no other plans. As I thumbed through the program, almost every film was made by a celebrity, be it former SNL cast members, Al Pacino produced, or Jon Stewart himself. Even the Barkley Marathons was directed by the two head camera operators on Mad Men. And the fact is, that's how people vet whether or not they're going to see a film. Recognition. If it weren't, we wouldn't be in the franchise, reboot, prequel, sequel culture we find ourselves in. And admittedly, I'm sure I'm no better. On paper, would I have been likely to attend having fun up there? How do I know it's any good? Most films like it are bad, so why wouldn't this one be? Add to this the media saturation of YouTube, Netflix, paper download from iTunes and Amazon, why would anyone take a chance on something they don't recognize? Even in the case of the Barclay Marathons, the audience was made up by athletes. Documentaries on Netflix are very well viewed, probably because there's a smaller likelihood that you'll be disappointed. There's no acting or writing, really, to get wrong. Over more Kirby Lane pancakes the next morning, I dumped these feelings in more on Kyle and Hanna, kvetching about the amount of preparation that went into delivering materials and planning the trip just to get a 17-person turnout as the return. I was genuinely discouraged to the point of wanting to give filmmaking a break for a while. Maybe a long while. Like the Seattle debacle, I was reminded that making the art has to be enough was the message of the film, baked into a monologue that came out of my mouth. For that to have been the case, I must have believed that to some extent, but I genuinely wondered if the yield I get from these projects is worth the effort put in. Most days, it feels like Troy McClure's juicer advertisement, in which you dump a bag of oranges into a juicer and get one drop of output. Kyle and Hanna also assured me that they went out afterward and the entire city was dead. I had to believe screening late on a Sunday night was the real issue. The rest of the day was dedicated to vacationing as we visited the LBJ Museum, complete with creepy animatronic, and went swimming at Barton Springs. With that, Hannah and Kyle flew back to Boston. Tuesday would be our second screening. The morning was spent hunting down an awkward but delicious vegan bakery for Nina, which looked more like someone's house than a bakery, followed by one of the few festival events we actually took part in, a meet-and-greet barbecue at Ruby's. I specifically wanted to go because it was hosted by Harrison, the original programmer who called me and accepted the film, and who I had to thank for being in the festival. We knocked back more delicious rubies and got on the road, this time to drive to Taylor, current home of Red Cow podcaster and copy editor Emily Brinkmeyer. We got in a fun and full day of picking up her adorable girls from school. Her oldest, nine years old, was Andy, who seemed kind of interested in her old Uncle Frankie's filmmaking and art. Despite the language and adult themes, we thought it might be a nice treat to take her to the movie. Her two younger sisters were devastated when Andy got to drive away with us, and they had to stay behind with Grandpa. But, as the oldest child in the family, Andy had borne some of the emotional brunt of her parents' divorce and being uprooted by a cross-country move earlier in the year. She was due a big-girl privilege. Andy got to join me for testing the projection, and I asked them to skip to a time code I assumed would have my picture on it. Suddenly, she was in a real-life movie theater, and her friend Frankie was up on the big screen. We got her dinner nearby, where she pitched me an excellent-sounding movie in which she stars about how she's so smart and gets these magical powers, wing powers to fly with dragon wings, red dragon wings, and can have a horn like a unicorn to lift stuff up and the power to turn invisible and also be a pony. I encouraged her to network with and flatter my writer later in the evening when he shows up. Emily, Andy, Nina, Jeff, and I all sat in the back row. To my shock, the audience turnout was decent. It wasn't a crammed house, but it definitely looked to be somewhere between 30 and 50. And besides us, there were no other supporters. Our other Austinite friends were unavailable, and our Massachusetts friends and family had already flown home. Andy sat next to me, and from what we gleaned afterward, didn't recognize any of the swear words in the movie. The Q&A this time was just Jeff and I, and it was more relaxed and conversational, and I handed out free DVDs and books to those who asked questions. They were more engaged, asking interesting questions like, what are the challenges of shopping around a 65-minute film? In case you're wondering, dear reader, my experience is that our runtime hardly mattered to festival programmers. When programming a shorts and features mixed festival, which all our festivals were, it's always easier to program a shorter feature because it means you can program one or several short films with it. The longer a feature is, the better it has to be to justify its programming slot. The next morning, I took Nina to the airport to fly home. Jeff and I were the last remaining Massachusetts residents in Austin and would enjoy two more days of vacation. Overnight, I received a few Blu-ray orders, presumably from attendees, and I rushed to the post office when I got back from the airport to fulfill them. I had a few extras in my bag. While on the town, Main Street was completely blocked off by some kind of huge promotional event. I convinced myself it was for the Jon Stewart film, but soon learned it was for NASCAR, a Red Bull-sponsored Formula One showcase of a prototype sedan. The highlight was when the car blew the national anthem pseudo-melodically out its engine. the most genuine Texas moment during my stay. I joined Jeff, Bonica, and several of their friends in New Braunfels, where we went tubing for four hours and got to enjoy everyone's tipsy thoughts on art, the commodification of nature, crowdfunding, unions, and more. The next day was dedicated almost entirely to Emily and her girls, in which I was tasked to help Gray, the middle child, get through her homework so I could take them out for ice cream. I tried to force her to read this book about a janitor and his dog who gets transported to an awesome island of birds, but then they escape and learn the value of home. Getting her to focus was a chore, but spending any time with those awesome girls is time well spent. I spent my final night with Bonica and her lovely girlfriend, Laura. They fed me taco truck food as they told me the story of them meeting. They also took me to a skee-ball bar, where they play in a league and win regularly. Both following the shoot and following the trip, I was left craving more creative collaboration with Bonica. I, too, flew back to Boston, and that was that. On my connecting flight, I noticed a YouTube message from a filmmaker that I had encouraged several months prior. They mentioned that one of my cartoons inspired them to make stuff, and I told them to make sure to show me when they were done. And now that they had finished, they wanted me to know how much that meant to them. Which brings us to another obligatory, ain't-that-just-poetic concluding thought. In these additional chapters, I had two big wins— Massachusetts Independent Film Festival, and the Middle East. And at Austin, a bad screening and a good screening, wrapped inside of an overall wonderful experience of being part of the festival at all. So how can I explain my emotional ups and downs? Do my goals for my art, like having a big turnout at my screenings or gaining reasonable distribution, get ahead of reality? When I make statements like, the art has to be enough, or adjust your dreams, am I full of it? I think it's pretty simple. If you spend months training for one race, and you end up running a poor race, whether by your own fault or due to circumstances, was the training completely wasted? Did you not get in shape, build community with fellow runners, and occupy your time with a positive goal and project? Are you now more likely to obtain your goal in a future race? The fact is, it would be false for me to say I make films with no expectations for their success. That success, as Rocky taught me so long ago, is defined any way I'd like, and in my case, I want interaction. I have a constant desire to express, and I want to be heard. When I feel like that communication is blocked or can't properly take place, I deflate. But man, it would be disingenuous to say this film was not heard, seen, felt, or experienced by anyone. It lived a full life, as full as I can expect. Some of my challenges are due to a saturation of media, as I mentioned previously. But I was so grateful this YouTuber reminded me that I encouraged him to not only make his art, but to also show it to me. For however much a saturated media culture disadvantages me, I balk at calls for more curation on places like YouTube. As much art as one can reasonably make in a lifetime, is what I called for in Chapter 3, and I mean it. If that divides each one of our audiences into small fractions of slivers, so be it. It's more important that we all have outlets for our expression than anything else. Now, I find myself writing a cartoon per month for E.J. Massa to animate, and we're having a blast. When I asked him what his goals are, he responded, To make as many things for the internet as I can. Forever. If that could be my job, great. Good outlook, EJ. I mean it. I'll conclude with a blurb from this bizarre, what am I supposed to take away from that, did he like it or didn't he, review, having fun up there, received from filminaustin.com. Austin Film Festival this year was really weak, but don't let that take away from what I'm about to say. Having fun up there was the best of the festival, and the best Q&A as well. I would like to call these guys the next great filmmakers, but they aren't, and that's okay. We need people to make the types of films that maybe a lot of people won't see. We need the truth in cinema, and this film was obviously made by a guy who doesn't want that happy ending. He wants to put the most honest look at art I've seen in a film. There is no happy ending. Life just gets worse. I'm so glad we're so inspirational.